Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the anti-CRISPR that helps viruses avoid destruction, and how much of Greenland's melting can be prevented. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Shamini Bundell. You've heard of CRISPR, but what about anti-CRISPR? Now, the CRISPR-Cas system is famous thanks to its use as a revolutionary gene editing tool. But its roots lie somewhere rather different. You see, CRISPR-Cas is actually a kind of bacterial immune system, one that recognises invading viruses called phages and chops up their genetic material, protecting against infection. And like all immune systems, it's part of an arms race between host and invader. And this is where anti-CRISPRs come in. You see, phages, despite their small genomes, aren't helpless. In some cases, they deploy anti-CRISPR systems in an attempt to neutralise a bacterium's CRISPR-Cas defences. And this week in Nature, a brand new kind of anti-CRISPR is being described. And it's one that works in a very different way from previously known systems. Reporter Benjamin Thompson spoke with Rafael Pinia Redondo, one of the authors of the new paper, about the new find and its potential biotechnology applications. Raphael started with a quick overview of how CRISPR-Cas immunity works in bacteria. CRISPR is very special because it's an immune system that has memory against previously infecting viruses and chopped them up with these what we call nucleases with our gene scissors. And essentially, when viruses infect the cell, some CRISPR-Cas components are able to take some short sequences of the viral genome and integrate it into what we call the CRISPR array or the CRISPR memory. And this memory bank is then expressed into these short CRISPR RNAs. And these are what guide the cast scissors. And when they find a match, then it will chop that DNA up or RNA, depending on the system. 
But viruses aren't defenseless, though, right? They have evolved a number of countermeasures to protect themselves against this fate. Yeah, I mean, the simplest one would be viruses mutate. And so they mutate in the sequences that would be recognized by CRISPR so that they're not recognized anymore. But then some viruses have also acquired or evolved what we call anti-CRISPRs or ACRs that are proteins. And these bind and specifically block the cast scissors from performing their natural function. And so they essentially inhibit CRISPR immunity. And that list of defences against CRISPR has been added to, it seems. So you've identified another anti-CRISPR system, one that works in a different way. What did you find? In this paper, one of the main findings is that we provide the first demonstration that viruses also use RNAs to inhibit the CRISPR-Cas immune response. There'd been hints then that this system existed through genome studies of viruses that infect bacteria, so phages. What was known beforehand? Yeah, so previous computational analysis had found that they have these CRISPR repeat-like sequences, and that's the minimal unit of CRISPR. But instead of being in the host chromosome, they would be in the genomes of phages. And it's unclear what they were doing. And in our work, we demonstrate that these CRISPR-like repeat sequences are used by phages to inhibit the CRISPR-Cas immune response. So there was a sense then that some phage genomes contain very small elements of the CRISPR system encoded within their own genomes. And you've been looking at one of these then and shown that when activated, it makes RNA that acts as a molecular mimic to try and defend against the host immune system when a virus infects a bacterial cell. What happens? Yeah, so these are molecular mimics of host CRISPR RNA guides, and they're not functional, they're incomplete or faulty. And so they interact with Cas proteins, but not to form functional effector complexes. So they're making subcomplexes that cannot work, and thereby they inhibit the immune response. And normally then the host makes an RNA guide molecule that attaches to the Cas part of the system, and that guides it to the invading genetic material, and the Cas kind of acts as a pair of scissors to chop it up. But in this case, it seems that the mimic binds instead and stops the scissors targeting the viral genome. Yeah, so it's like a non-functional version uh, that would compete with the standard CRISPR RNA, but these complexes are blind. They wouldn't find any viral target. So it's just a numbers game then in terms of is making enough of the mimic to block the system working? Yeah, so it's diluting the functional complexes in the cell by forming these non-functional ones. And how widespread do you think this system could be? We've only characterized one in detail, but we've done some computational analysis. I mean, we have an idea that they are widespread, but I think a lot more characterization needs to be done now to confirm that some of these are also inhibitors, because it could be that some of these that we predict could be doing something else. And you mentioned earlier on that viruses, despite having these really quite minimal genomes in many cases, have got potentially multiple defense systems. You talked about proteins, for example, to stop Cas, and now you've got this RNA mimic system as well. I mean, is it a surprise that viruses have so many ways of escaping defense systems? No, I think it's part of the arms race, right? And also bacteria don't only use CRISPR, they have different antiviral mechanisms. On the one side, you have bacteria employing all of these defensive mechanisms. And on the other side, you have viruses coming up with strategies to evade or block all of these immune systems. I mean, in terms of the arms race, bacteria still exist, so the viruses haven't won. I mean, in terms of your system, do you think there's an anti-RNA-based CRISPR system to be found? Very likely. I mean, there's indication that there's anti-anti-CRISPR. It's a bit complicated, but there's indication there's anti-anti-CRISPR proteins because they inhibit the activity of anti-CRISPR expression. 
And in terms of CRISPR-Cas, of course, this system, once it was discovered and maybe laid out, it's been quite a game changer, it has to be said, for molecular biology and gene editing and so forth. Do you think there's a chance that the anti-CRISPR system you describe has uses outside of just protecting viruses when they try to infect bacteria? Anti-CRISPRs have found applications in biotechnology. Many of these applications need an off switch. And so anti-CRISPR proteins have been used to turn off CRISPR-Cas activity. But the problem with anti-CRISPR proteins is that they're very difficult to identify in nature. What I think is a very interesting feature of these RNA-based anti-CRISPRs, you know, by learning how they work and how they have evolved, that we might be able to rationally design anti-CRISPRs on demand for different applications. And I think some application could be in enhancing phage therapy that specifically kill bacteria. So phage therapy is becoming more and more popular because of the rise of antimicrobial resistant bugs. And so it's basically the use of phages that specifically kill bacteria. And of course, if you want to introduce phage therapy, you want to bypass host immune strategies, right? And so if we're able to equip phages with anti-CRISPR strategies, they would be more effective at taking over bacterial populations and killing nasty bugs. Finally then, what surprised you the most about this system then? Because there was evidence that it did exist and you've shown that it works. What caught your eye when you were doing the work? I think it's just fascinating how viruses are employing components of the bacterial immune system to fight that bacterial immune system. It taps into like a very beautiful or like very widespread theme across the evolution of viral evasion strategies across the tree of life. So we have viruses in humans, plants, and and so on that are employing similar strategies to inhibit the host immune response. So it really highlights this double-edged nature of host immune components where they ironically can be co-opted by viruses and used against the immune system to slow it down. It's like fighting fire with fire. That was Rafael Pinea Redondo from the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. To read his paper, look out for a link in the show notes. Coming up, projections for how much humanity has to do to prevent the worst melting of the Greenland ice sheet. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. A queen named Tyre might have been the most powerful person in Viking Age Denmark, according to a new study of ancient runes. The name Tyre is mentioned in inscriptions on four carved memorials called runestones in southwestern Denmark. All four date to the mid-10th century, but two are at a site roughly 30 kilometers from the others. Researchers analysed the shape of carved characters, the carving technique, and the language used to determine whether all referred to the same woman. And the similarities they found suggest that two stones were in fact carved by the same person. And that detail, along with other names carved on the stone, indicated that yes indeed, all four stones did refer to the same person. The team say this suggests Tyler was a particularly powerful and celebrated figure, key to the creation of the Danish state. Not even Tyler's famous son, Danish King Harald Bluetooth, is mentioned on that many stones. The authors say this suggests women had even more influence in Viking Age Denmark than was previously thought. You can find more on that research in Antiquity. Astronomers have found one of the fluffiest planets ever discovered. No, you didn't mishear me. This exoplanet is known as a superpuff planet, and it's mostly gas, 
giving it a density that's only 1.5% that of Earth. The planet, given the catchy name TOI-1420b, is among the least dense of all the 5,500 known extrasolar planets. It was discovered when it passed in front of a star, causing a weekly dip in the light recorded by a NASA satellite. This transit, as it's known, was then investigated further using observations from ground-based telescopes, which allowed a team of astronomers to estimate its size and mass. Whilst TOI-1420b is about 25 times heavier than Earth, it's also more than 1,700 times larger, which makes for a very puffy planet. The team concluded that the atmosphere, mostly helium and hydrogen, makes up most of its mass, and speculate that it was formed farther away from its star and migrated closer in by interacting with a large, unseen companion planet. You can read more on that study in the Astronomical Journal. When you think about climate change, probably one of the first things you think of is melting ice. Take the Greenland Ice Sheet. This vast sheet of ice covering almost 80% of Greenland holds around 3 million cubic kilometres of ice. If all of that was to melt, it would lead to around 7 metres of sea level rise. In fact, with current climate warming, the ice sheet is already melting, and we're already committed to some amount of sea level rise, a potential disaster for low-lying and flood-prone areas. But exactly at what temperatures the ice sheet would melt, how quickly, and how much humanity can actually prevent this from happening are complex questions that climate scientists are trying to figure out. But thanks to a new paper in Nature, we may have an idea. It looks at the specific temperatures at which this huge stretch of ice would transition from its current state to so-called rapid melting, known as its tipping point. I caught up with one of the authors of the new paper, Niels Boho, and he told me more about what we already knew about the Greenland ice sheet's tipping points. So if we cross this critical threshold that we call tipping point, then we expect that there's an abrupt change in the system. For the Greenland ice sheet, we expect that we transition to another stable state that can be in completely ice-free Greenland, for example. But what hasn't been done so far is that if we cross these critical thresholds, we might have some time to reduce the temperatures again before we actually have this change because the ice needs a lot of time to melt, like on the scale of hundreds, thousands, to maybe even ten thousands of years. And so when you say tipping point, I imagine that is quite a sudden thing. But from your description, it is a sudden change to a different state, but the actual melting would take a while. Is that correct? Exactly. So we have to define what is sudden, actually. Sudden means for Greenland, for example, that it is, as I said, several thousand to ten thousand years. But nonetheless, there is a specific, or at least there should be a specific temperature, global mean temperature, at which point it will transition to this other state. We have this critical threshold, and you can express it in terms of global mean temperature. And in our study, we find it's between 1.7 and 2.3 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures, where we have this abrupt change. So that means if we stay at temperatures above these critical thresholds, we would lose the Greenland ice sheet completely. And on what sort of timescale would we lose the Greenland ice sheet in this case, if we go to this 1.7, 2.3? If we stay very close to these thresholds, it can take several 
thousands of years, even up to 100,000 years if we basically exactly on the threshold temperature. But the more we go above the threshold, the faster it is. So if we go to six, seven degrees above pre-industrial, it can take maybe only 1,000 years. And so to get to these particular numbers, the 1.7 and the 2.3, what did you do? How did you sort of go about determining these thresholds? So what we did is that we used two independent ice sheet models and we basically start with present day conditions of the ice sheet of the climate and then we warm the surface temperature around the green ice sheet, above the green ice sheet. And then we also looked at the latest generation of climate models and we looked what is the relationship between the temperature in Greenland and the global mean temperature. And then we get this factor that we can use to translate the temperature in Greenland to the global mean temperature. I mean, when you put it like that, it sounds very straightforward. So how has this paper sort of transcended our previous understanding of the Greenland ice sheet? To our knowledge, it's very much in agreement with previous research or studies. So I think the consensus is between 1.5 and 3 degrees in previous studies. So I would say we are um, in the middle of the consensus of critical thresholds for the Greenland ice sheet. But then one interesting thing about your paper is you also looked at what would happen if we're able to mitigate these temperatures in the future, if we're able to bring the sort of temperatures down if we overshoot these thresholds. What did you find in that case? What sort of timescales were better or worse for the Greenland ice sheet? I mean, maybe it sounds obvious, like quicker the better, but can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, very simple, the quicker the better, but it depends so we have the overshoot temperature, so the temperature we reach at the end of the century. Then we have what we call convergence time. That is the time we need to go back to a temperature. And simply put, the longer the convergence time, the more sea level rise we have. And the higher the overshoot temperature, the more sea level rise we have. So, But for very short timescales, that is within 100 years, then the overshoot temperature is not that important, but the temperature we reach within these 100 years is the most important thing. Because for the Greenland ice sheet, 100 or 200 years of warming is a relatively short period. So the ice needs some time to react. And 100, 200 years is not that long. But the important thing that we have to keep in mind is, even if we are able to mitigate a large loss of the ice sheet, by the warming that we have today, we already lock in some sea level rise because we warm and the ice sheet is reacting so slow that it also reacts, of course, slow to our cooling again. And so what would you say then are the implications of your findings? The implications are, as I said first, that we already today determined to some extent what sea level rise we will have from the green ice sheet in the maybe next 200 years, 100 years. But the other thing is also that we have a chance to mitigate large sea level rise if there is a political will to either limit the global warming today which is the easy option or if we reduce the temperatures after we reach the maximum temperature again that was niels bocho from the arctic university of norway for more on this story check out the show notes for a link to the paper finally on the show it's time for the briefing chat the part of the show where we discuss a couple of stories highlighted in the nature briefing so nick why don't you go first this week well shamni i've got a joke for you to start uh, my section of the briefing oh, chat this week yeah. so Great. how many ecologists does it take to answer a question i don't know nick how many ecologists does it take to answer a question 246 but they all get different answers Hooray! <laughs> I mean, I don't get it, but hooray! 
please explain your joke. Explain the punchline. That's that, that's always a good sign. So it's not the best joke, but it does illustrate <laughs> the story that I'm talking about this week. So this week I was reading an article in Nature about a sort of reproducibility trial where oh. a number of ecologists were sat down and they were trying to answer the same questions using the same data set. And then some other researchers looked at what they came up with to see if they were consistent or not. Oh, so this was a sort of artificially set up reproducibility test for a bunch of individual ecologists then. Yeah, exactly. So the way it was set up is that the ecologists were given one of two data sets and a question to answer. So the questions were, to what extent is the growth of nesting blue tits influenced by competition with siblings or how does grass cover influence eucalyptus species seedling recruitment so standard sort of ecology based questions and they were given the same data set depending on which question they were trying to answer and then sent away to analyze the data and uh, what this study found is that people came up with very different answers thus my sort of joke at the start i can understand that there might be some variation depending on the sort of statistical methods used but surely in the same data set with that many ecologists there's only there's only so many different answers that you can get what 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 were they coming up with well for the blue tit one most people agreed that sibling competition negatively affected nestling growth but it's the size of the effect where the differences were so people were quite widely different on that for the eucalyptus uh, species question it was really quite different so On average, there was no effect found, but some people found really strong positive effects. Some people found really strong negative effects. So there's a real wide variety in there. And as to why this is that people are coming up with different answers to the same question with the same data set, according to the author's of the study that was testing this, which is a preprint, so it's not being peer-reviewed. But according to them, this actually reflects the participants' training and how they sort of set sample sizes. So more sort of their background and how they approach data rather than anything inherent to the data itself. So we've reported on sort of reproducibility issues before, which usually involves people sort of taking a particular paper and trying to reproduce it. So this is obviously a sort of really big study, which... I mean, to me, the results sound kind of worrying. What what have people been saying? Well, the authors of this study say that what we normally do is we treat individual papers' findings as pretty definitive. But they say that these results show that we can't rely on any individual study to tell us, like, the whole story. And it also sort of speaks to a larger problem. So you've probably heard of the sort of reproducibility crisis. This is something that people think of, particularly in the social and psychological sciences. But I don't think any particular branch of science is immune to it. And that's actually where this idea of getting a bunch of people to study the same data came from, from social sciences. It's something called the many analysts method. And yeah, it just sort of may give energy to certain movements that are trying to improve reproducibility in science generally because it shows that there are many different ways to answer a scientific question and so therefore there needs to be more effort to put into trying to reproduce it better or coming up with better systems to understand scientific data. And do they have a suggestion for what these better systems might be? You sort of suggested 
you know, you can't just rely on one paper, but here they've got quite a few um, <laughs> people working on the same thing and it's still not very reliable. Yeah, so the authors say that people could use practices common in other fields to show like the range of potential results you can get so in economics for example there's something called a robustness test which requires researchers to analyze their data in several ways and then assess the variation they get from analyzing the data in these different ways and so that can give you an indication of how much variability there is in answering the question but you know the other issue that this study raises as well is that ecology itself is quite a tricky field because like there's a lot of variability in the natural world like it's not very controlled conditions a lot of time it's very observational so it could just be inherent to the field as well that people are very used to sort of observational data and you know dealing with a lot of variation in how to interpret it i feel like there's a lot of potential for more of these particular kinds of data analysis studies, as you say, across different fields and more studying of the reproducibility crisis. So hopefully we'll have more of that on the podcast as this story progresses. Well, what I'm looking forward to hearing from you is to reproduce my excellent briefing chat and for you to tell me about (laughs) your story this week, Sharmini. A bit different, bit different from yours. Not sure whether this counts uh, as anywhere near a reproduction. My story this week is about building roads on the moon, paving over the moon. (laughs) I mean, this sounds fascinating, but I must say, I don't think there's a great amount of traffic on the moon. So where's the push coming for for this? (laughs) Well, it's, I mean... Compared to the olden days, I'd say the moon has quite a lot of traffic these days, all these rovers and landers and all all sorts of things. So I've been reading about this in Nature and the Guardian, and this is based on a scientific reports paper. And yeah, there is a real need for some sort of, when I say paving or roads, what I really mean is a flat, solid surface on the moon that is not, and this is the key, dusty. Mm -hmm. The moon is annoyingly dusty. So if you see the footage of astronauts bouncing around and driving their little vehicles over it. They kick up all this dust. The surface of the moon is called like the lunar regolith and it flies up into the air and the moon has really low gravity. So apparently this dust gets everywhere and just causes all sorts of problems. It can interfere with scientific instruments. It can sort of start wearing things away. There have been times where you've got vehicles where like the radiator has got covered in the dust and then is overheated. So this whole like pavements on the moon thing is all about trying to overcome this dust issue. And I guess, you know, when you go into the moon, cargo space is important. So I'm imagining people aren't taking like tarmac and things to lay down paving for roads and that sort of thing. So how would they actually go about making these flat less dusty areas well exactly they're not about to transport any building materials from earth to the moon so what have we got to work with on the moon well what we've got is dust is the problem and the answer um what they've done so this is i will note that this is a, an experiment that has been done on earth not on the moon so it still needs to be reproduced accurately on the moon but they've got on the earth a particular material that's basically used as a stand-in for lunar regolith like fake moon dust basically and their methods for turning that dusty substance into something hard and solid that doesn't get everywhere is aiming a giant laser at it 
and basically melting it into a sort of hard kind of glassy substance. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a super sci-fi way to solve this problem. But again, we don't have like Death Stars, lasers that can go a long (laughs) way from Earth to the moon. So how would they do this like on the lunar surface itself? You could theoretically take a big laser to the moon. Their plan is actually to use concentrated sunlight to basically get a big lens that's going to focus the sunlight. So rather than having a solar powered laser just use the sunlight directly focus it get enough heat to melt this dust which will hopefully work with the lunar dust as well as it does in the lab this obviously you know some things might be different they don't exactly know tests obviously need doing on that but they reckon that if they had a lens around two meters wide that would be suitable for their current sort of technique that they've developed and potentially it could even be like a foldable lens so you don't have to take a giant glass magnifying glass up in your spaceship with you and they've been doing a lot of testing on what the sort of beam needs to look like so they're not just sort of like taking a huge giant beam and zapping a straight line and being like boom road it's relatively small so the beam is i think just under five centimeters in diameter and they've been working on right let's make a little shape So they've actually sort of drawn a triangle with this beam. So they've got this sort of triangular hard bit, the sort of hard glassy bit. It goes about two centimetres down into the dust. I think the sides are about 22 centimetres wide. And they figured out that they basically need to be careful not to overlap. If the beam tries to sort of go over an area that's already been melted, it tends to crack. This stuff is kind of brittle, but also has pretty decent compressive strength, which is sort of pretty important if you want to land things on it or drive things on it. And they've been working on shapes that can all fit together, basically. So you can kind of slot all these shapes together and make this big flat surface. I mean, it sounds, as I say, it sounds super cool and sci-fi. So I'm getting all sorts of ideas in my head. But this is a lab test. How far does it need to go to become a sort of lunar reality? Yeah, this is very much promising initial results with a lot more research needed. Like I said, like, does this work under low gravity? What happens if you build your little road and then you have sort of rocket thrusters hitting them? Lots of lots of unknowns, kind of a lot of potential as well, because, you know, building on the moon, some of the people behind it have even been talking about whether this could be useful for building structures on the moon. Because, again, you need to work with the material that you've got there. You can't really take a lot of it with you. And so there have been a lot of questions about, okay, what kind of uh, material properties does this sort of resulting glassy substance have? And how useful is this going to be for different kinds of structure? So tons of research to go but yeah very fun to sort of picture and imagine they have some sort of exciting illustrations of their hypothetical future moon with these nice little interlocking triangles acting as a sort of landing pad and and pathway coming away from it so yeah pretty cool no it sounds super cool and listeners will actually put some links in the show notes where you can see pictures of some sci-fi recreations of what this might look like or the actual melted materials themselves and we'll put that in the show notes along with links to the stories that we discussed and a link of where you can sign up to nature briefing to get more stories like them direct to your inbox and that is all for this week as always you can keep in touch with us we're on x our handle is at nature podcast or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com i'm sharmini bandel and i'm nick petrichell see you next time
Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a thousand new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.